Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Good morning, everyone. Great to be back with you. This is two weeks out of three that I've been here with you at Mackenzie in the morning. I think it's just they want to check that I can do two messages back to back rather than just the one service that we have at Ormo, but it is really good to be here this morning. Who was here a couple of weeks ago when I gave my very creatively titled message, The Three Bins? Just a show of hands, awesome. Everyone else, this won't make sense to you, so just tune out for 30 seconds. But I said in my message, right, that every time you took the rubbish out this year, I wanted my face to be etched in your mind's eye. Okay, that week, one of our creative young people from Ormo snuck into my driveway and did this to my bins. <laughs> so I come this morning with a very public apology, because that is not a face you need to see every day that you take your bins out. I, uh, it, it didn't even fall off when the rubbish man came last week, so we'll see how long they last. But uh, I thought that was very clever and very creative. Last weekend, we spoke in church about our Bible reading plan for the year, and we just released a Term 1 Bible reading plan as an encouragement for all of us to find the discipline of reading God's Word for ourselves and just carving out some time every day to do that. And if uh, you weren't here or you're not aware of that, can I encourage you to jump online to our website, gatewaybaptist.com.au. You can find that under the Next Steps section of our website, or you can get a paper copy off our welcome desk this morning. And every day, we're just encouraging you to read one chapter of the Scripture. One of the things I love about the discipline of reading a chunk of Scripture is sometimes when we do that, we see a little bit of the context that gives more life to some of the words and the stories because there's no, there's no accident the way the Scripture's been pieced together. And I want to show us a little bit of that this morning by uh, talking about a whole chapter out of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can follow along with me. But what I want to do this is Mark is one of the four people that write the story of Jesus. So there's four gospel writers, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all write the story of Jesus from their own kind of angle and perspective. And they pick up different aspects of that story. And we find great unity in that as we read that. But Mark's one of the gospel writers that he's he's real action-orientated, it feels. Like Mark is just, and then Jesus did this, and then Jesus went there, and then he moved immediately to this place, and he said this. And it's just constantly moving because we read that sometimes those stories are pieced together and we see them in their larger context we understand part of why Mark's put a bunch of stories together let me tell you about four stories that Mark tells us in Mark chapter 2 the first one is a story of Jesus coming to a place called Capernaum and by this stage Jesus reputation has started to grow in the communities in which he's moving people have been hearing stories about this guy that has this revolutionary teaching and and this ministry that follows that people are getting touched and healed and incredible signs and wonders are following the ministry of this man named Jesus. Jesus turns up to Capernaum and he's in a house in this village and there's so many people that have turned up to hear him speak that uh, the house is just full and overflowing. No one can get in to the lounge room where Jesus is. And uh, there's four guys that have heard about the miracles of Jesus and they've got a friend who's been paralyzed and they decide that they want to take their friend to Jesus. And so they carry him, four mates, carry him 
to this house in Capernaum, but they can't even get near the guy. So they go up onto the roof and, and the houses were very different and they were able to dig through the roof. Imagine someone turning up to your house and putting a hole through your seal. Like Life Group is just that riveting this week that they can't get in the front door and you know, revival's broken out in your lounge room and so they dig a hole in the top of your roof to lower somebody in. Well, that's what they do. They dig a hole in the roof of this house and they lower their paralyzed friend into the feet of Jesus. Jesus has this little encounter with him where he says, oh, your faith is incredible. Your sins are forgiven. Now, on the sideline is, is a group of people that we encounter numerous times through, the gospel, uh, through this story and through all the gospels. A group of people that are often the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Let me tell you a little bit about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You see, often we use the Pharisee term as a bit of a throwaway to people that we think are just kind of stuck, stayed, and a bit stagnant in their faith. But the Pharisees were really devout, godly people. They actually had a real bent of wanting to do God's will. Sometimes they were just misguided in the way they applied that. So they knew the law of Moses really well. And one of the things that really drove the Pharisees was a desire for purity. And so they lived in a time where their land had been occupied by the Roman Empire. So there was Roman rule, but they were very, uh, they worked really hard to maintain the purity of their faith and the worship of God and, and the rules and the regulations that surrounded that. And so anything that was an outside influence that threatened the purity and the move forward of their faith and the way things were done, they felt threatened by it. More than that, they were people that knew the law of God. They weren't all professionals. They're actually, most of the Pharisees were just kind of middle-class people from, that had gathered into this group, and they knew the law of Moses. But they weren't just people that took the words and then took it and applied it, just as it said it. They were people that interpreted the law and then talked to people about what the law meant and how they interpreted it and then how it should be applied. So one of the things the Pharisees regularly did was they took God's word and then they looked at how they could contextualize it and interpret it and so they'd add regulation around it. So when the scriptures in the law said that you should observe the Sabbath, someone said, well, what do I do in this scenario? And so they would talk about what it meant to apply the law in that scenario and they would create more stipulations around a lot of the law that had been written. And they were people that passed on that tradition and that application through word of mouth, through the generations. So here are a group of people that are very devout, very zealous for their faith, very passionate, and were uh, uh, just worried about anything that looked like an outside influence that was going to water down or destroy or come against the faith and the world that they'd created. And they were very strict adherence to the law as they had interpreted it. So these guys appear in the story. So the man's been lowered through the roof, the feet of Jesus. Jesus proclaims over him the forgiveness of sins. And it says that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, in this case, enter the story. It says this, this is their reaction to Jesus' interaction with the paralyzed man. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why did this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It says immediately Jesus knew what they were thinking and challenged them and heals the man who came in paralyzed and walks out with his mat under his arm. But the Pharisees sit on the sideline, the teachers of the law sit on the sideline, and they analyze what Jesus is doing, and they are threatened by the fact that Jesus is speaking and operating in a way that sits outside of their frame of reference of what God should do and what God is like. 
It's sad, isn't it? Man is healed, and they're questioning the authority of Jesus. Second picture. Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus comes to a man named Levi and invites him to come and follow him. Now, Levi, the scriptures tell us, was a tax collector. Tax collectors were hugely unpopular with their fellow countrymen. But for one particular reason, tax collectors didn't just take money from uh, their fellow countrymen on behalf of the Roman Empire. In other words, they were colluding with the enemy anyway. But they took more money than they should because it was the cut that they took that actually funded their lifestyle. So not only were they working with the people that everyone hated, they were actually taking more for themselves. So people just despised the tax collectors. And Jesus comes and invites a tax collector to follow him. What happens when Jesus enters your world, when you have an encounter with Jesus? Well, Levi does what many people do when they have an encounter with Jesus. He throws a party. Because, like, joy and something incredible has happened to him. But Levi becomes Matthew. Doesn't have many friends apart from other tax collectors, and as the Bible calls them, sinners. What what a reference. Matthew invites a whole bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. That's a fairly broad reference group, isn't it? But you can just imagine what the party was like at Levi's house that night. But Jesus goes to the party. Jesus starts hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus goes to a house that the religious folk of the day thought that no good God-fearing, God-following person should be at and hangs out with people that you shouldn't just hang out with. These are not the young people that you want your kids hanging around. And so Jesus, in all of his grace and his love and his mercy, starts hanging out with this group of people. And what does the Pharisee heart say? The Pharisee says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples For there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Image one. A man has freedom proclaimed over him, forgiveness proclaimed over him, and he is healed. And the heart of the Pharisee looks in on that and says, this doesn't fit my reference point. How can you proclaim the words that you're proclaiming? Image two, Jesus starts hanging out with people that are sinful and broken. And this is good news, right? This is, this is a good news story. Jesus actually doesn't mind hanging out with us in the midst of our mess and our brokenness. That is what God is like. But the heart of the Pharisee says, why are you hanging out with them? Starting to get the picture, the problem here. Image number three, we move away from you know, just warm, fuzzy encounters to now some real points of law and points of, you know, the way things are done. You see, picture number three in Mark chapter two is of uh, Jesus and his disciples being observed for their not engaging in fasting. The scripture tells us this, John's disciples, John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, let's be honest, there's nothing fun about fasting. This is a spiritual discipline that I personally struggle with significantly. Going without food and spiritualizing it, I don't think is great, but it's important. There's something actually about giving up something that's staple for us so that we can focus on the things of God. But the Pharisees were incredibly religious 
in the discipline of fasting. And so they now see the people that are following Jesus not fasting at a particular time, and instantly they think, man, I don't like... They've just had a party at Matthew's house, and who knows what they ate and drank at the party. And then they've walked out of that, and they're having Maccas for breakfast, and here we are in a time of prayer and fasting, and we don't like this. And I can understand why not. Picture number four. Jesus is walking with his disciples through a grain field on the day of the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was a big deal. Here in the creation account, it says that on the seventh day, God rested, and he said, keep this day and make it holy, and shouldn't do any work on these days. And so right through the law, it talks about what it means to have a Sabbath day. Well, Jesus and his disciples on a Sabbath day, it says, are going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Doesn't feel like that big a deal. But you see, that was something the Pharisees said was classed as work, so therefore forbidden on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said to him, look, what they are doing in picking those heads of grain is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus goes on to have a great conversation with him where he says, you kind of missed the point, guys. The Sabbath was never something that God gave us so that we had to serve it. The Sabbath was something that God gave us to serve you. In other words, God told you to have a rest because it's good for you. He didn't create something that was going to be encumbrance on your life. He actually created something that's going to be good for your life. So have a rest, have a day off. That's a different sermon, but Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Have a day off. It's actually a godly thing to do as much as not eating and praying at the same time. So have a day off. But here's four snapshots, right, of Jesus and the Pharisees. Snapshot one, man gets healed. Pharisees' reaction, I can't believe what Jesus is doing. Can't believe the words that he is saying. What authority does he speak with? Snapshot number two, Jesus is hanging out with the broken people, the sinners, the tax collectors. They're all experiencing the love, the grace, the embrace, the compassion of their creator. And the Pharisees are on the sidelines going, I cannot believe he's hanging out with those people. Snapshot number three, they're all engaging in the spiritual discipline of fasting. Jesus and his disciples aren't. And they're looking in from the sidelines, criticizing once again the way that Jesus is applying the law. Snapshot number four. Same thing, a, a tradition, a question of tradition. It's the Sabbath, and your guys are doing things on the Sabbath they shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath. You see, the heart of the Pharisee is always looking and analyzing and critiquing. And you know the reason why they're doing that? Because God in the flesh, Jesus, did not fit the framework and the box that they expected him to. Now, there's a message for all of us in this because some of us, need to allow God to actually start breaking out of some of the boxes and the frameworks that we try to place him in. You know, some of us look at others that receive freedom and healing and instead of celebrating with joy, we want to question whether it's real or whether it's happened or whether it's legitimate. And there's something in our spirit at times that can have the heart and the spirit of the Pharisee that looks on with cynicism to anything that sits outside of our framework. Well, God sometimes wants to break out of the framework that we've created for him. See, the Bible tells us that we were created in God's image. Many of us spend our lives trying to make God conform to our image. One of the great challenges of letting God transform us into his image. In the middle of these four snapshots that Mark gives us in chapter 2, Jesus tells these short little stories, and I think the context will take on greater meaning for us when we surround them with the stories of what's happening. Jesus says this, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old dark garment, for if they do, the new piece 
or pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And people do not pour new wine skin into old uh, new wine into old wine skins. For if they do, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. You might be thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about with wine and wine skins. What's a wine skin? Well, let me give you some context as to how wine was brewed and created. And I've done extensive research on Google for this, so my Word comes with authority this morning. But in Jesus' time, when you were making wine, they would take wineskins, which were the skins of animals that had been taken off and cleaned and sewed into pouches. And when you were pouring the, the new wine into those wineskins, you, you needed a fresh pouch because in the process of fermentation, so the wine was fermenting, you know, it was expanding and gas was being produced that was actually part of the fermentation process. And the new wineskin, the new skin of the animal, had enough elasticity and capacity to cope with the process of fermentation, what was happening as the wine was being created. Now, if you took new wine that was yet to be fermented and placed it in an old wineskin, you had a problem. You see, old wineskins had been out in the sun. They'd been drying out. They'd already been stretched and expanded from the process of wine fermenting in them, and they'd become old and brittle. So pour some new wine into an old wineskin and it didn't work. You know what happened when you put new wine into old wineskins? The whole thing blew up. I had a mate that used to brew ginger beer under his house in three litre thirst tanker bottles and he'd forget about them until all of a sudden sitting down at the dinner table at night he'd hear an explosion and realise one of his ginger beers had over fermented and blown the bottle apart. You see, that's what Jesus is saying. If you put new wine in old wineskins, the whole thing blows up. And it's a really simple story that people would have understood in the day, but it has a really deep significance because Jesus is saying, I'm here and I'm doing a new thing in me is actually the true picture of what God is like. I'm going to show you how the law is applied in the way we treat each other, in the way we speak to each other, in the way we do life together. I'm actually doing a brand new thing in ushering in the kingdom of God. I am God in the flesh. And, and so with me is the new thing that God is doing. If you try and take that and place it into your old frameworks, ways of doing things, ways of thinking, it's not that it's just slightly incompatible. Actually, the whole thing is just going to blow up. It doesn't work. The whole thing is going to blow apart. And so what do I want to say to this, about this to us today? Because I want to move the challenge to you and I sitting here this morning and ask some hard questions of ourselves. What is the challenge for this in a new year? You see, I reckon there's some boxes that we try and put God in, some frameworks that we've created that we try and make sense of God through. I want to talk about two of those this morning. The first one being the box or the framework of experience. Maybe you're here this morning and you're new to faith or you're just tentatively checking out Jesus and seeing what church is like. Or maybe you've returned to New Year and it's part of your new resolution is to re-engage with your faith. See, one of the things that I talk to people a lot about is that their experience of God has been framed by an experience somewhere back there or a person back there or something that someone said back there. And so every time someone speaks to them about God or speaks to them about things of faith, instantly they go back to the framework 
that's been built for them long ago. And sometimes that framework's really good, but for some people the framework was terrible. And maybe through a a really well-meaning person or a a scripture teacher or someone in a church or maybe a church experience or a colleague that was a Christian, they built a perspective of what God was like. And so now every time people want to talk to you about what God is like, you can't help but instantly revert to the framework that was built for you long ago. My encouragement to you this morning is this. Maybe you don't need to try and fit God into that framework. Maybe God wants to do something brand new and build a whole new framework through which you know him, experience him, and encounter him in your life moving forward. You see, if we try and fit God into the old framework, it's not going to work. It's just going to blow the whole thing apart and everything gets messed up. Maybe God wants to do something brand new for you this year. I talk to some of my friends about coming to church and they go, yeah, I used to go to church. And when they tell you about your church experience from 35 years ago, you go, look, just it'll be really different from what you experienced back there. But it's just the framework through which they've viewed God and faith ever since. Maybe for you it's not actually about faith or, or church community. Maybe there's something within church community that you've kind of put in an old framework, an old experience. Maybe for you, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you took the courageous step of putting yourself into what we call life groups, but for what you might have just been called a Bible study group or a cell group or a small group or something like that. And you went along and you you kind of really felt like it was going to be a good thing for you to be part of a small community. And you went along and just something happened. It didn't work for you. Maybe you shared something in prayer and someone went and told someone and you felt your trust was broken or maybe it just, you know, was someone there that just hijacked every night and waffled on for two and a half hours and you just decided that that is what life group looks like and you've never gone back. Or maybe God wants to give you a brand new experience of small Christian community this year and the thing you're going to have to do is break out of the old framework and let God do the new thing and build a new framework for you. Maybe the same could be said for you about serving. You served and it didn't work out or you had a bad experience or someone said something that upset you and you've never, give, you've never stepped back into it. Well, I would encourage you that sometimes God wants to break apart the old experiences and frameworks that we've built so he can do a brand new thing in us. And in 2020, maybe for you, the challenge is to step out of that old experience and like, let God write a brand new story in and through your life this year. Second box I want to talk about this morning, a little bit more pointed because it's, it's very implicit in the stories that Mark tells, and it's the box of tradition. And I just want to say something about tradition because tradition is something we always think about those that are older than us, but I think all of us carry traditions no matter what age we are because traditions are the things that we do or the worlds that we create that bring comfort for us. All of us have got spaces that are most comfortable, the way we do things, You know, all of us have kind of traditions in our family. This is what you do at Christmas. This is what lunch should be look like. This is the food that should be served. This is how we do, like all of us build traditions because traditions are the places for us of greatest comfort. And when I came to faith, church looked quite different from the experience that we're having this morning. The the liturgy or the order of what happened was somewhat similar. There was still some music. There was still a message, but the way it was done looked really different. I I've been in church, just to let you know about my story, my entire life. My family were really uh, engaged in a local church in Dubbo in country New South Wales where I grew up. And so from the first Sunday that 
I was able, I've been in church and I've continued that right through my life. So that's part of my context. It's not many of our contexts, but that's my context. And when I first remember church, we used to have church in this A-frame building in Dubbo. It was a really interesting piece of architecture. I don't know who decided it. It's not the kind of church building I'd build today if we're going to build something, but it was this high A-frame and there you walk in and there was a mezzanine level, which was just amazing given the size of the church. And you walk through and there was a whole bunch of pews and at the front of the church, as you came up on the stage, there was this huge wooden lectern that the preacher used to stand up in. Now, by the time I was old enough to remember they'd stopped using it, but it was this huge mahogany-looking wooden platform that you'd walk up the stairs and proclaim the Word of God out of, and it just overwhelmed the stage. To the side of this great wooden pulpit, we didn't have screens. We hadn't even by that stage in my first memories moved to the revolutionary use of the overhead projector, which uh, was actually my first job in church, the overhead projection boy. And uh, I was really good at it. You had two jobs when you were in the overhead projector. You had to brush off the bugs that were attracted to the light and then just make sure you kept up with the song and put the, the transparency on the right way. So that was my job in church. If some of you are going, what's an overhead projector? Google it later. You'll be overwhelmed by the technology. But we didn't have that. We just had these wooden boards on the side walls, right? They were about yay high, this wide, and they had numbers that had been slid into them. Some of you know where I'm going with this, don't you? 131, 92, 267. And if you came to church, you knew what those numbers meant. Because as you walked in the back door, they'd give you a book. It's called the hymnal. And it had lots and lots of songs in it with the music, so you could sing along to the melody line. But when you came into church, you looked at those boards, and if the first number on there was number 131, well, you would open your hymn book to hymn number 131. And then everyone would stand and the lady would start belting on the piano and we'd all sing, you know, about how thy heavenly fountains flow from the trestle tables of the great reservoir of the Spirit. I made that up. That's a cool, is that a good title? We'd all sing it together. There's usually about 18 verses in all the hymns. They just go on and on and on and on. And then once 131 was done, everyone would turn to page 92 and we'd sing hymn 92 and then we'd all sing him 273, and we close our books and we'd sit down. Who remembers those days in church? Who was there? Yeah. We're going back there, people. It's the revolution of 2020. That was my first experience of church and my first experience of music in church. We then did move to the overhead projector in choruses where we didn't sing 17 verses. We just sung the one verse 17 times. And uh, just go on and on and on and on and on. And it wasn't just a blue hymnal, there were now coloured books that you could uh, sing from. So it was amazing. That was my entry to faith. That was what I experienced of the church when I was young, and I've seen many iterations of that. You know, back in the day we had youth camps, but youth camps, I've decided now that I understand them, were just really the chance for my parents to have a second honeymoon every year. Because they just take us to camp. No one had mobile phones, no one had a contact number, no one even knew where you were. It was just like... We dropped the kids off and no one was sitting beside their phone going, I haven't heard from the little cherubs for the last two hours. I wonder if they're there safely. I hope that they've got their pillow and I hope they've got a comfortable bed. Parents didn't care about that stuff. <laughs> I, I just kind of figured if there was a problem, someone would find them. They'd send a letter. And 
then hopefully that we'd all just be at the church when they said that we'd be back at the church. And usually we'd pile out the back seat of a car where there weren't enough seatbelts to accommodate all the kids that they'd jammed in to get back because that was the way things were done back then. That was what church was like for me growing up. Things have changed remarkably. But for all of us, we get comfortable in that which we know. And that was the main issue that Jesus confronted when he confronts the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in his day. It's the problem with the traditions that he created. They'd taken the essence of God's law and they created all this structure around it. And it's so much so that when a man is healed, they can't celebrate it. Because God didn't fit neatly within the box that they created for him. See, there's nothing wrong with embracing those times in our life, those traditions that are comfortable and familiar unless they become something more than just that, unless they become the essence of what we chase. You see, if the packaging becomes more the thing that matters and the message contained in it, we're starting to lose perspective. So I want to say a few things this morning that might confront, I'm not going to say upset, I hope they challenge and confront a few of us today. What I want to say is this, if we're going to reach new people with the gospel message, the good news of Jesus' love and grace. We're going to have to allow people to innovate new methods to do it. See, when Jesus tells the story, he talks about putting new wine in new wineskins. See, the product is still the same. It's still wine. It's just new wine in a different packaging. And the truth and the essence of the gospel message is timeless. It will never change story of what Jesus has done for us, the story of his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his invitation into relationship, that story doesn't change. The thing we're going to have to be open to is the packaging that people put around it. We're going to have to allow them to innovate ways to share it so that the truth of the message gets heard with clarity by a new generation. Let me speak for a moment to the older generation or those who, like myself, are old in the faith. I wouldn't say I'm super old yet, but I'm certainly old in the faith. I want to say this to us this morning. Let's cheer on the younger generation to contextualize the message of Jesus to reach their own generation. It might mean that some of us have to let go of some of the things that we love, the things that are comfortable and familiar to us, to embrace new means, new sounds, and new liturgies to reach those that are yet unreached. You see, I didn't think I was that old until my kids started overtaking my car stereo and trying to play their music. I put a song on a couple of weeks ago from a band that I quite like called Powderfinger. Anyone know who Powderfinger is? And I said to my kids, oh, this is a great Powderfinger song. Do you guys like this one? And they didn't just say, Dad, we don't know the song. They said, Dad, we don't know who Powderfinger is. There was stunned silence in my car as I thought, how can you not know one of the great local Brisbane rock and roll music products of the last 25 years? Does anyone agree or is it just... How do you not know this, kids? So we were nearly home. I locked the doors and decided to take them on a long ride through the cane fields of Norwell to educate them in good music. So we went back to the very beginning. We went back to some midnight oil and I just cranked it in the car and we moved into some U2 and some cold chisel. 
took them back to some of my early Christian music roots and put on some DC talk because they're trying to play rap. Well, their rap is just rubbish. <laughs> like rap is synonymous with MC Hammer, right? Come on, I can't touch this. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? No? no? Do, 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 do. <laughs> my, 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 my music makes me so glad. Anyway, <laughs> kids, make your parents play Can't Touch This by MC Hammer on the way home and then Google it. He does this cool dance with gold flappy pants, right? It's awesome. Anyway, I tried to educate my kids in good music and they didn't want to have a bar of it. And then they put their stuff on and I've got to say, frankly, the music of today is rubbish. <laughs> and on that, I'll leave the stage and my message is done. <laughs> See those claps, kids? That is your parents agreeing with me. That is the biggest amen I've ever had in a 10 a.m. service at Gateway Mackenzie. But you know what? I'm trying to let my kids take over the stereo occasionally. And so they plug in their devices and they start to play the music that connects with them. And I've got to be honest, I don't love it. But I embrace it and then have a moment of realisation that 30 years ago when I started to take over the tape player in my dad's car, he had to come to terms with the fact that he had a son that was starting to fall in love with rock and roll when all he really craved was that I'd fall in love with Bach and Beethoven. Because my dad's go-to place was putting on the great symphonies in the 1600s and just loving that space. And it's the same thing for me today as I sit in my car and I listen to the songs that connect with my kids and their generation. I don't like it, but I'm embracing it. And I realise if I'm going to let go for the sake of the next generation in years to come, there's going to be some things that I'm not going to like because they're not my comfortable space. They're not the sounds that connected with me as a young man. Some of the music won't be to my liking. Some of the things that get thrown on screens won't be to my liking or the way that I choose to do it. The sound won't be to my liking. But I've got two choices. I can either spend the rest of my life telling them how they should fix it so that my generation can still have a comfortable experience of church or I can take a different route and that is to champion it and to pray for our kids and our young people so that they grow up to be a generation that speaks a language that connects with my kids and my grandkids. Because as I get old in my faith, the thing that matters more than me having a great experience is that my grandkids get to experience the love and grace of God. Isn't that true? And I want to say to some of you families here today, and this is going to be really, really hard to listen, but as you mature in your faith, if you're a person of faith, as you mature in your faith, one of the things that comes with that is a willingness to sacrifice the things that suit you for the sake of others. And if it means sacrificing some things that make you most comfortable for the sake of the next generation getting to experience the love and grace of God in a way and a language that connects with them, I encourage you to do it. If your kids love being here, put up with whatever it is that makes you not love being in certain places for their sake. Because the essence hasn't changed, but some of the packaging has to. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life getting young people to fix things so I'm comfortable. I'm going to choose to happily and joyfully embrace, champion, 
and pray for them as a new generation of young people and leaders find new and relevant ways to make the timeless and unchanging message of Jesus connect and become relevant with their generation so that we leave our church in great hands. Some of us desperately pray for revival. We want God to move. Maybe the thing that he's going to ask of us is to start to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We can't expect to do all the same things and get different results. It's a new day. It's the same God. But there's going to be some new ways and some new songs and some new methods that people are going to have to find so that the timeless message of Jesus reaches whole new generations of people. Jesus says, don't put new wine in old wineskins. If you do, the whole thing blows up and everything gets wrecked. Some of us need to dismantle some of our own frameworks and let God do a brand new thing in a brand new way. 2020, you open to the new thing that God wants to do in you. Are you older in the faith like me and you're going to choose in 2020 to become the greatest champion and encourager? of the next generation so that more people have the chance to discover the good news about Jesus in a way that makes sense to them. Can we all stand this morning? I'm going to pray for us. We're going to finish a little bit differently this morning. Lord, I just want to pray for all of us here this morning that we may be open to the new things that you want to do in us this year, the new things that you want to do through us this year, the new things you want to do in our church and through our church this year. God, I want to pray that we would have the courage to not limit you to the old ways that have become so comfortable for us, but God, to celebrate as new generations innovate creatively the timeless message of Jesus in ways that connect with new generations. God, I pray for that personally for us. I pray for that corporately for us this morning. God, new wine, I pray. New wine skins, I pray. Hey, what I want to do this morning is something a little bit different as we land. I'd love to pray for those of us that are young. So I, I, you can decide where that cutoff line is, but I'm going to go say... 25 and under today. How's that? If you're 27 and you feel young, you're welcome. It's just if you're here and you're 25 and under, or if you're a leader of young people, you're in a space where you're actually leading the next generation, one of our youth leaders, one of our kids' leaders, or maybe you're in a vocation outside of the church where you're leading the next generation. I'd love to pray for you this morning that God creator God. Yeah, I love the very first picture of God is creator. He is the most creative one we'll ever meet. Incredibly creative. Let's go and glance at nature for a few minutes and see the creativity of God at work. We want to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that there will be a new creativity released, a new innovation released for the sake of the gospel. And young people, I want to pray over you as, as the future of this church and churches all across this nation and around the world are dependent on your generation to be creative and to innovate, to take the timeless message of Jesus and find the ways that they're going to help your generation understand it and embrace it and choose to give everything for it. 
Here's a challenge for some of you young guys. Some of you to do that are going to have to become great theologians. You're going to have to dig deeply into the timeless message of Jesus so you understand it. Then you're going to have to allow the work of his Holy Spirit as he helps you shape the way that you communicate it. So young people, we're going to do something different. We're going to pray for you. And the way we're going to do that is I'm going to invite you, if you'd like prayer, to come down the front. I could make it easy for you and just get people to gather around you, but I don't want to make it easy for you because the easiest thing that's going to be asked of you in this is to walk to the front of a church. It's actually going to be some harder days ahead if you take up that challenge. Some of you will get ridiculed. Some of you will get laughed at. Some of you will get challenged. Some of you get called out on social media. There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's going to make it uncomfortable for you, but today's the first step. Just going, God, I'm here. I'm yours. Use me. Give me visions, pictures, dreams of ways that I can engage my generation with your good news story. I'm going to pray over you this morning and I'm going to invite you to come down the front, spread along the front and then I'm not going to pray for you. I'm actually going to get the old generation, the old heads of the church to come gather around you and just pray a blessing over you. Pray that God by his Holy Spirit would pour new wine into new wineskins through your life. So as the band starts to play, can I ask you, if you're young to have the courage right now to move from where you are and come down the front? It, it takes one to start this movement. We saw this at eight. And you're going to have to spread right across the front, guys. If, if you're here with kids and, you know, they're just going, oh, I'm too nervous, I don't want to do this. But parents, feel free to bring your family down. We pray for you as a family. But young people, why don't we spread right across the front this morning? Let's start to sing. We'll give these guys time to move, Mark, and then let's pray for them. Hey, uh, I encourage you, just get the name of one of these young guys and pray for them. For some of you, these are going to be the ones that reach the next generation of your family. We just need to keep praying for them as leaders. Young guys, there's something beautiful about the picture of the church, right? There's there's something about hanging out in a church that's cross-generational because you get to hang out with cool old fellas like Paul Kavanagh, Right? And uh, Cav has been a great encouragement to my life for many years because he's a few years beyond me. Not many, just a few years beyond me. But when people are in love with Jesus and champion the next generation, it's the wisdom that they speak into your life that you'll crave. They're not going to tell you how to do everything, but they're going to be the ones that support you, encourage you, and show you what it's like to be of more mature age and still in love with Jesus. So as we pray for you, find the mentors in your generation, in your circle that you lean into, you listen to their stories, you invite them to pray for you because these are the champions on whose shoulders you'll stand. God, thank you for this generation of young people that you've brought into our church. Thank you for their passion. Thank you for their zeal. Thank you for their love of you. God, release new songs from them. Release new and innovative ways in which your story will be shared. Give them the courage to go and speak your truth to their generation. And God, as they do that, may the fruit be overwhelming to us. God, we look forward to seeing them uh, as leaders into the future, starting churches, growing churches, bringing health, caring for people. Lord, leaders in business and industry, leaders in schools and hospitals. God, whatever world you call them into, would you just speak life into them in that space, we pray. God, I pray your blessing over this week that we're all about to step into. As we leave this place, may we be reminded every moment that your presence 
is always with us in every conversation, in every action. God, may we represent you well in our world this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, church, thanks for being with us this morning. Look forward to catching up with you again soon when I get the chance to come back to Mackenzie. Bless you. Have a great week. Go buy someone a coffee and encourage them on the way out. See you soon. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If we can pray for you or you would like to take a further step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to connect with you. Please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au and click on Get Connected to let us know.